Hi, Stephanie here. I am an entrepreneur, lobbyist, wife, mother, book lover, and political junkie. I think gender equality is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And I love to learn, especially from other women. So I started Women Don't Do That, a bi-weekly podcast and blog to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. Julia Anderson is the Chief Executive Officer for the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, CanWatch. In 2019, Julia spearheaded the shaping of a renewed collective vision by Canada's global health sector that resulted in a $14 billion 10-year investment by the Government of Canada. As CanWatch CEO, she continues to champion bold, innovative, and even disruptive approaches to advancing the health and rights of women and girls around the world. Welcome, Julia. Thanks so much. So excited to be here. I love uh, the piece about being a disruptor that you you got me there. (laughs) You know what? It always, every time someone reads my bio, I'm like, am I living up to that? Am I living up to that? Because I, I, you know, I really believe in the power of being a disruptor, uh, but sometimes I I feel I'm playing a little bit too safe. So it's always an an aspiration when read. There you go. When I, when I was looking at your bio to, you know, the 14 billion for investments in health, you and I have both worked in international development and and been a part of past investments too. I'm like, wow, I know how much work that is to, (laughs) to get those types of investments. So congratulations for that, for that hard work for something that's really important. Thank you. And I mean, it was uh, one thing that was really excitement, exciting when we got that investment was that it was such a shared effort. So I certainly did not uh, do it on my own. And it was, you know, the power of voices coming together and voices, mm-hmm. not only Canadian voices, but also from the global south. So, yeah, I think that's something we both share. I often find uh, I'm a lobbying consultant. And so often one of the first things I'm telling clients is, is there other people that, that share your message? Are you on board with some of the other people in your sector? Because if you're all asking for the same thing, you're more likely to get it, but it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And, and you would know that from, from the work that you've done. It's easier said than done. So it's, yeah, no, we, we, with that one in particular, there was a bit of a healing journey of like, uh, yeah, just consensus building and helping people understand uh, perspectives outside and give up a little bit, right? Like everyone had to compromise yeah. a little bit to get to where we landed. And yeah, it was an exciting, exciting announcement. And unfortunately, there's still a lot more work to do. Yes. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Julie and I didn't know each other before connecting around the podcast, but we know a lot of the same people and have some very close friends in common. Uh, so it, it was exciting uh, to get the chance to talk to you today. We are talking just after International Women's Day. So it's part of the reason I wanted to have you on because I know you have, you know, the, the domestic and global picture about what's happening with women during the pandemic. And so I'm excited to dive into that with you. I wanted to ask you to kick things off. What does life look like for you right now? Well, uh, it's been interesting. So I have uh, a blended family and a total of five children. Uh, so two stepkids and three kids. Uh, three of whom are older and then two of whom are little. And so life looks like uh, supporting with university applications, decisions around like big life decisions of the big kids because they're 19, uh, 19, and tw- 19, 19 and 21 um, and trying to imagine like, do I recommend that my daughter goes to university in a right. pandemic or do I say, ah, let's hold off for another year? Um, while managing uh, with lots of support from my big kids, uh, the little kids, uh, virtual school and working, you know, being at home and in our, I'm in Peterborough and our school district decided that this year, in addition to the pandemic, that on snow days, the schools are actually closed. So we live blocks away from the school, but we no longer can. So we find out at six in the morning uh, if the school is open or closed. And it just feels, I I guess it's in keeping a true pandemic fashion where you never know what's coming. So it's a little bit of chaos, uh, a lot of playing outside and being in the snow. Um, And then a lot of hard work because of course we, we in my office are looking at uh, women and children's health and health is top of mind for Canadians and it's top of mind globally. And we really want to make sure that, um, 
you know that we're driving impact and making sure that our neighbors around the world, our, our friends and colleagues are protected while at the same time uh, Canadians being protected here at home. Yeah, it's, it's such a difficult and challenging time, right? You're doing such important work and so many people are. And even though this pandemic is happening, like your work is really important. And so trying to cut through the noise and, and still do a good job when there's so much going on around you, it's definitely really challenging. I wanted to ask you as a parent, because you do have kids that are older and younger, have they been experiencing pandemic life differently? Yeah, I mean, definitely you think about being 19 and 21 and you think about the kind of things that really shaped your life at that time. Um, And I know for me, I mean, I was a parent at that time, so I was shaped somewhat differently or in kind of a different circumstance, but relationships, friendships, connections, learning, and being out in the world is so important at that age. And so for them, I just... I felt actually more heartbreak um, because I have them all along the spectrum. I'm like, just, I just feel this tremendous heartbreak for them that they're not getting out there and they're all partnered. They all have boyfriends or girlfriends or partners and things. And, you know, they don't get to see them and then they do get to see them. And I just think it makes, you know, as, as people, I'm in my thirties, I've, I've had enough life behind me that I can imagine relationships in a new way, but they don't like, they don't have that. Right. And so they're actually, forming relationships in this moment I think it's really challenging and then for the little kids it's the same thing I mean it's just um how do you create those social bonds and connections so that they're 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 not losing that while being safe and you know it's challenging but I think uh there's been there's been silver linings too with more time more time with them more time with kids do you find like is there a particular piece of advice that's helped you get through with your kids like a piece of parenting advice? Um, so I did something a little controversial. I don't know if the teachers on uh, that listen to this podcast or the school administrators would appreciate this, but I mean, my little kids are six. So kindergarten, she just turned six and eight. So grade three. And so when it came to virtual schooling, I had the opportunity. I have um, uh, my aunt lives with me and is, is able to help out with childcare So I just said, we're not doing virtual school. And I just emailed the teachers and said, well, I get in trouble for this. I said, they'll read, they'll speak in French. They're in French immersion. They'll do math every day and they'll spend three to six hours in the snow outside. And it was a tough call and I felt, I felt guilty about it, but it was the best decision I made. So I think that the advice is, you know, you don't have to color in the lines when it comes to these decisions, you've got to make it work for your family yep. and kids who feel that and see that, I think, um, rather than this, I mean, I was talking to one mom who has a newborn and kindergarten kids. And she's like, my goal is just not to flash the kindergarten class while I'm nursing my baby <laughs> yeah. and trying to get my kindergarten kid into the simultaneous thing. It's not yeah. working for my family. And I said, yeah, drop it. Just yeah. drop it. Just tell them no. Right. And so again, I'm not sure how the school system would feel about that advice, but man, I just, it, once I lifted that weight off myself, um, yeah, it was a game changer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think given to you did have those other supports within the household to, to help you through that. Right. So um, uh, definitely a point of privilege, um, definitely a point of privilege that not everyone has. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, but but that it goes back to people just doing whatever is best for for their situation. Um, yeah, through, throughout the lockdown, even when things have been really tight, um, my one daughter plays outside sometimes with an, another little girl, and, and we keep them social distance as much yeah. as we can, and and they're outside. Even like it's so cold in the winter here, <laughs> um, but she's been having a really hard time with her mental health, and and part of me is like, oh my gosh, will the neighbors be upset or like is it's kind of stretching the rules but um at the end of the day you do need to make some really difficult calls and I think we need to be kind to each other and less judgy about it too oh it's huge I mean my uh so my older daughter uh stepdaughter was actually uh in the hospital for um an eating disorder program over Christmas Mm -hmm. and she does not live with us she lives with roommates but when she came home I mean I I just said, 
were not, even though the lockdown measures were strict, um, you know, this, this kid, I'm worried about suicide. I'm worried about mm-hmm. bigger things. And I'm, I'm going to have her in my home whenever she's willing to be there. And I'm going to hug her and love her and yeah. go walks and do the things. And, and mm-hmm. again, it's about, I felt like that was a justified response. Because yes. You have to weigh out. And even sick kids, you know, mm-hmm. sick kids yeah. who's one of our members, they're saying that kind of thing. They're saying you've got to weigh these decisions and it's about being responsible, of course, but it's also about truly being responsible for everything, not just COVID. Yeah. And I think it also just comes back to that saying about like, you don't really know what's going on in, in people's private lives. Right. And so um, if somebody is making that decision, like for me doing some of those things, I had more guilt or more pressure on myself than like, any neighbor calling on me or something like that, trying to make those difficult decisions. Um, but like you were seeing with, with your child, uh, the, the, the situation is pretty serious. And so you do need to make some of those difficult calls. I want to ask you before we're going to jump into your career path here in a bit, but what motivates you to live your best life? I love that question. I absolutely love that question. And I've heard you ask it on your podcast before. So I was a little <laughs> bit prepared. Um, I mean, I think I'm really motivated by the notion of truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I grew up in a very um, uh, evangelical Christian household. And there's this passage in the Bible that though I've long since left the church has stuck with me, which is seek the truth and the truth will set you free. Mm. And I think if I look at that kind of my career and my, my family life and the way that I, I hope what people talk about at my funeral eventually mm. is that I always sought the truth and I always sought to promote it. Right. And, and to get stories out there, I'm not a journalist, but sort of that idea of getting stories out there that aren't being told and that, that I feel like unlock a piece of our heart and who we are and um, yeah, I'm, I'm really motivated by that. And of course, right now, this is uh, a moment where we really do need to be telling the story of what's going on around the world yes. to Canadians and kind of unlock that moment. So I think, I think, yeah, that's the best summation of what motivates me. Oh, I, I love that. Thank you for sharing. I also come from that background too. So it, it is interesting. And, and when I got interviewed for the podcast, um, I, some, some of the same things came to mind. Interesting, yeah. Can you tell us about your career path? How did you end up where you are today? Yeah. So when I was younger, when I was a little girl, my, par- uh, my grandparents and many of my family members were missionaries. So back to the evangelical. <laughs> and I just, so this is a, was a thing to do. And my grandmother would um they lived in north africa and she would record cassette tapes of her speaking about her day-to-day experience uh in morocco and she sort of lived all over and she would send them in the mail uh this would be so much easier to do now uh she'd send them back in the mail to our our home in grand prairie alberta northern alberta and we'd get to listen to grandma speaking and from that time on i knew i wanted to work when I was young, I thought I'd be a missionary as I sort of grew into my current philosophy on life, left that and, and the, the reimagining has been to work on human rights and equality. Um, so that's where I was passionate. I, came, I moved from uh, Alberta uh, and Saskatchewan to Peterborough to go to a little program called Comparative Development Studies. There's only six programs in Canada that were around international development at the time. Now there's a lot. And I studied international development and I learned about, um, you know, the ways in which development is problematic, the ways in which solidarity is important, the ways in which global stories are critical. Um, and from there, I just tried so hard to get jobs in, in, in development work. However, I had a daughter at the time and I found that the pathway into international development work, I don't know if you found this too, mm-hmm. uh, is kind of unpaid internship with organization, you go somewhere sometimes, sometimes you stay here, but you kind of spend a couple of years in that precarious work environment and unpaid work. I couldn't do that. I had a kid. I was very lucky to find a, do- a job. Eventually, I probably put out, I think I put out 500 resumes. Like mm-hmm. I was just a machine, a resume machine. And I uh, finally got a job with this little grassroots international development organization located here in Peterborough called Jamaican Self-Help. And I worked uh, for five years with, with uh, that organization, working with young Canadians, 
helping them influence policy. And so we, we talked about our, our joint lobbying passion. That's where it started for me. It was how to tell the stories to young Canadians about what's going on globally and what Canada can do about it. And then set them up with the prime minister, set them up with their MPs, set them up with anyone who will talk to them, break down the door, get in there and have some influence about what they want to see in the world and what they want Canada to do. Then I kind of took a veer off and worked for the Ontario government as a grantor in the not-for-profit sector. I wanted to understand what it meant to be on the inside uh, of, you know, those doling out influence and money. And that was uh, illuminative, but also, yeah, it was great, but it, it ran its course fairly quickly because it's fairly cyclical. And I didn't feel like I got into that disruption and that real is, is government work. Um, and then spent a little bit of time as director of human rights at a university and then uh, found CanWatch and uh, have been here for, for four years and almost, yeah, almost five and have loved every minute. I love what you shared about having to put out, you know, like 500 resumes. And I think it's great for people to hear those types of stories. So, you know, if you are trying to find a job, like for listeners in a field that, that you really want to be in, but it's really hard that sometimes it just takes a tremendous amount of effort and, and persistence. And you'll often um, hear that from people who have, you know, developed careers that, that they love, that they had to work really hard uh, to get there. What yeah, is, I, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, um, so when I went to work for the Ontario government, um, Karen Takics, who is the then, uh, she's late Karen Takics, she was the head of a, a, she was an idol of mine and like someone I really, I was on a board with her and I just thought she was one of the smartest women that I'd ever met. And um, I, I felt really guilty. I was getting paid about $22,000 a year at my not-for-profit job. So I was bartending on the side to make enough money for my daughter and I to live well. And um, so I did need a change and I loved that job. I loved that work, but it just wasn't paying enough for me to take care of my kid. And so this government job came up and I took it and I felt this tremendous amount of guilt, mm -hmm. right? Like I betrayed my international development <laughs> sector. Like this is the job I studied for this. I want to, and Karen came to me and she's a leader in the international development space. And she says, Oh, I worked for OTF. Those words, uh, for the Ontario Trillium Foundation where I was, those words changed my life. Mm. Like her saying that to me and saying, I did, and she said, you know, take advantage of all the professional development money they have. Learn a lot, think yeah. a lot. And I was like, you just freed me from yes. all my worry and my concern because I know that this mere, uh, meandering path could get me to where you are. And that gave me hope and possibility. And so now when I'm talking to young people, and if you're listening to this, I always say, it's okay to take the meandering path. Yep. Do that goal, join boards, do volunteer work, do those pieces that keep your soul in the space you want to be in. But it's okay. Like you can, you know, the, the roads turn. And I, yeah, just thought uh, I'd show that in case there are job seekers. It's hard work yeah. and the meandering road. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Can you share a little bit more about what CanWatch is and what, what you do? Yeah, so we're a really interesting uh, organization because we are in international development work, but we're a coalition. So we've got 100, over 100 members, and those members, if you think of like the Dairy Association or something like that, we're kind of like that. All of our members are united by, by a couple things. They are Canadian entities that are working globally to pursue women and children's health. So this could be that they're global advocates. This could be that they're actually in countries, uh, staffing hospitals. It can be it can mean all different things. They can be research institutions. I mentioned SickKids, they're a member of ours. So they're all under this big tent of CanWash and our job is to help them do their work better by improving mm. their capacity, to help them we call ourselves the speed dating uh, site sometimes because we do setups all the time. I'm like, you need to talk to you and, oh, you guys would love each other. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we've actually created any romantic relationships, but we could maybe get some stats on that. <laughs> uh, we definitely do a lot of connecting. And then, of course, it's uh, the issues that we're passionate about front and center for decision makers. So that work that we did to get the, to secure the 14 billion, it's to, you know, put a package in front of decision makers and say, this is the right thing to do. It's a smart thing to do. We're going to help you do it. So those are kind of, uh, that's our work in a nutshell. So as the CEO, 
because we have a lot of listeners from all different sectors. W- like, what does your job look like? What do you do? So I spend um, a lot of time working with my management team just on uh, supporting our team to do their best work. So I spend time in, you would call it technically human resources, but what I call it is just uh, people engaging. So having, making sure that the entire team is set up for success, that they have the tools that they need, the things that they need in order to do their job well. I do a fair bit of public um public presentations, trying to, again, get this story, this truth that we have uh, within our organization, the things that we know out into the public eye. Um, So that's part of uh, my day-to-day. And then a lot of it is just uh, spending time and listening, listening to our partners, trying to figure out what are the key trends, trying to spend time doing the thinking around kind of where where our sector is going, where it needs to go, what's the next 10 years. Um, So I try to carve out space for that Mm-hmm. just hard that thinking time not just that doing yeah. time I was gonna ask you how do you do that <laughs> I'd like to know yeah. tell me your tips and tricks Julia yeah I mean I run every morning and uh before my kids get up or I try to run every morning before my kids get up I'm not perfect but um that's a big thinking time for me is just like the space to bring it all together uh mm-hmm. I try to once a week, it was my goal to once a week connect with someone that has nothing to do with what I'm thinking about or doing. Um, so like a random kind of connection through friends that just to hear and that gets my brain juices flowing. And I, I do, I mean, I, I've, I have tried to like calendar time, you know, all the yes. managed things will tell you calendar time uh, to sit and think doesn't work for me. I'm a person who with the right conversations, I'm inspired and I dig in. And it's more about saying like, like last night I had this conversation with um, a a government person at seven o'clock at night. And it was like, Oh my goodness, how do I clear from eight till 10 right now? So you do the kids bedtime, you do this, you do that because I need to dig into this. Like I need to understand it and I need to spend the time now. So like my, I'm in that headspace. I think that's it. I think that's good advice because um, so often we try to create it, but if you're not in the, in the headspace at that time, then you're not productive anyway. So it's a different way to look at it. Are it's, there, critical, yeah, sorry, go ahead. it's critical for women. Um, I would, yeah. I, you know, I, I think one of the biggest challenges that faces our gender is that we, we do, we're human yeah. doers, mm-hmm. human givers. Um, and we do not. And we're also freaking tired. <laughs> and we're all tired. And then we want to have a nap, not spend the time on strategy and thinking, right? And it's yeah. that's an overgeneralization, but it is. I've heard enough successful men say that this was critical to their success. Yes. And then watch enough successful women, you know, go from meeting to meeting, from caring to caring, from thing to thing. And I'm like, man, what is she? if she'd had two hours free, what would she be thinking about? And where could she get me? Right. And it's right. Yeah, totally. Yes. That's so interesting to think about. Are there misconceptions about your industry? Oh, there's so many misconceptions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think the biggest one is uh, people hear us talk about international development. They say, what about here at home? And they immediately go, and I'm in meetings all the time with with members of parliament, but also engaging with Canadians. They immediately set a good against a good. Yeah. And they immediately say, well, if you're talking about drinking water in uh, Tanzania, I want to talk about drinking water in Indigenous First Nations. Yeah. And I think that is a fair point. However, why are we comparing those two critical things? Why aren't we comparing indigenous drinking water with the cultural and events budget at, it, within the government? Why aren't we comparing indigenous drinking water with all the other government departments? Why do we pick out this one global space of solidarity where Canada gives less than 1%, it's 0.27% of our overall budget. Yeah. And we want to pit that and, and somehow take that piddly amount of money and apply it to all the things that we need to do in Canada. We have an obligation to hold up the human rights of the Canadian population. That comes before everything else. It absolutely does. 
we also have to show up in the world, right? We've mm-hmm. got to show up in the world and be something because we depend on the world for everything from this coffee I'm drinking. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a global uh, commodity to, the, you know, many of the products, things in my house, many of the relationships that I depend on are global ones, right? And so if you think about that, why, you know, why are we using these good, good against good comparisons rather than saying, this is a critical and fundamental thing we need to do alongside this other critical and fundamental and absolute 100% thing we need to do. But let's not compare it. Let's not compare them. Let's not allow one to be the out for the other. So I think that's the number one misconception is that we can't do both. Mm-hmm. So I always say, put an and in the middle of that sentence and I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> we need to show up in the world and be play our role in the world. And we need to take care of Canadians. And there's no reason... As a G7 nation, we can't do both. There is no reason. Mm-hmm. Any politician who's telling you that is not telling the truth. Right? Uh, yeah. Which is important to me. Yeah, of course. One of the things that you and I had chatted about before when we had a get to know you interview is about how COVID and the pandemic have impacted women. And I wanted to chat a little bit, and, and I know you keep an, you know, your thumb on things that are happening in Canada and also international. I'd like to dive into both a little bit. I think, you know, a lot of our listeners or most of them are women and we're living this experience right now, but also everybody's experience is so unique and it's hard to look beyond what's going on in your personal life right now because um, everything's so difficult and challenging. Uh, so what we're hearing though is, is that COVID is having an adverse impact on women in a different way than it is with men and concerns about us being you know, reversing back all kinds of work that we've done in the past. And, and as Canada rebuilds that, that women don't get left behind. Is there anything that you would like to share about uh, that snapshot of, of women in Canada and what we're seeing right now with the impacts of the pandemic? Yeah, there's so much, I think some, some really interesting entry points that a lot of people can, um, a lot of people can identify with is that women are twice have during the pandemic in Canada have been twice as likely to lose their job uh, to men. And they are uh, what early kind of uh, economic modeling is showing us is that they are also much less likely to return to work. So they left work in uh, uh, larger numbers and they're returning to work in even uh, fewer numbers. So when you look at that, I mean, the pandemic has the potential to reshape our workforce back to like pre-war. You know what I mean? When women weren't supposed to work. And that has this ripple effect on decision-making, on the kinds of um, programs that are available. I mean, study after study shows that when you have, uh, it's not just add women and stir, when you have women and men working together to make decisions, better decisions are made. There's yeah. some fascinating studies that have Harvard on this that uh, just really, that also showed the disproportionate effect of one man and nine women, uh, five, uh, five men and five women, and kind of how all these uh, gender dynamics play out. But what I know is that if we have a workforce that has massively underrepresents women, uh, Decisions are going to be poor. Families are going to suffer. Children and young girls are not going to see the kind of people that they want to aspire to in the jobs that they want to take or could imagine taking. I mean, it really does. It's, it's this doomsday. It's like um, Handmaiden's Tale. Like it has the ability to bring us back into this like dystopian yeah. version because we know what it looked like back then. We have yeah. history books to tell us. Right. And so do we want to go back there? Yeah. Um, And then, I mean, the other piece that we talk a a lot about at Kenwatch is that the majority of the workforce when it comes to healthcare globally are women. So in Canada, the last stat I read was 86% globally at 72%. So if you think about who is staffing. Yeah. Like burning out. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And when childcare centers got shut down, Mm-hmm. and single moms and uh, still had to go into work because they were nurses and there was a whole lot of shame and blame and 
what yeah. you left nursing at that moment. And it, you know, well, how, like you can't work from home in a hospital while doing childcare. Those things, it is a separate location. Like there is yeah. no option. Right. And I, I just think this is, it's a, it's an untold story. And I think it Absolutely. has, could have like, not just next year impacts, but generational impacts. Yeah, it's so, one of my friends is, is a nurse and she's leading some of the um, inoculation sites and uh, like she hasn't had a day off in three weeks. She's working 15, 16 hour days. She's got kids and she's carrying the stress of a nation in a certain respect, right? Like it's um, the expectation on them, like it's unbelievable. Um yeah. And even like day-to-day things, like my my uh, my kids used to go to after-school care before the pandemic. Now they come home. So they're home every day at three o'clock and I'm still working. And then uh, their dad has been working a lot, like most evenings too. He's not here. Um, so I've been like single parenting it for months. And then he says to me last night, he wants to go skiing on Saturday. And I was like, like, first of all, it's a pandemic. Second of all, like, I am exhausted. <laughs> I don't want to be alone with them again. And not that I don't love them, but it's just, and like you said, like then that puts like Saturday, I'm tired and exhausted. Like, will I get a break Sunday? Who knows? And then you're back to the grind again on Monday. Um, yeah. And that's just, you know, a small example. What, are there some things you think we could or should be doing to make sure that we don't fall behind? Like what are, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the government needs to take <clears throat> a really active role in incentivizing uh, women mm-hmm. and uh, from an intersectional approach. So this should be Indigenous women, women of color, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, but, but women in general also to come back to the workforce. So there are lots of good ways to do that. And, and we need to, why can't we be a country who's leading on this globe? Because this is a global phenomenon. Let's take yeah. some leadership here. Let's figure it out. We've got a government that professes to be feminist. Okay, let's think about how we can incentivize women to come back. So Julia, would you say that's where things like a national child care program or like some of these other ideas around child care and things like that can help? I am so passionate about a national child care program. And I say, I, I've spoken at length to my MP about it, um, who's a minister as well, Minister Monsef. And, the, you know, when I first moved to Peterborough with my three-month-old daughter as a, uh, when I was 19 and I was going to university and I, my whole family at that time was at West, I needed childcare. I went on to waiting lists that I got calls back for six years. I was on probably six to 12 or uh, 12 waiting lists Mm-hmm. And maybe I got three or four calls back to say you're on the waiting list to even know. Yeah. It was a brutal experience. Yeah. I was like, I'm young. I'm a student. I just don't get it. I'm new to Peterborough. Well, and you wouldn't know, like you wouldn't even have a network of friends or family to ask or to get your grandma to step in. Yeah. I didn't have people. Yeah. Fast forward 10 years, uh, 11 years to when I had my next child. So now I'm a working, I'm a career person. I've got my education behind me. I struggled my entire university for childcare for my daughter. My first job was the first time that I got her formal childcare. Um, and it was, I drove her out of town. So uh, 30 kilometers out of town to find a childcare center that I trusted and was high quality. Uh, that was my, so I commuted for childcare, not for my job. My job was literally <laughs> a five minute walk from my house. So that was my experience with, with her. And then fast forward 10, 11 years, I'm like, oh, I, I, like, I know everyone in Peterborough. I'm really, you know, like I'm connected. I have a job. I've got money. I can yeah. choose different. Yeah. You better believe it was almost impossible. The only way I got childcare was because a friend of mine said she was going to open a home daycare. And <laughs> I was like, put me first in line. Line, I'm first. Like, yeah. remember, you're bringing back memories to me. I remember with my oh. first daughter, I'm trying to remember, she was either in school or I was on mat leave with the next one, which actually would have been around the same time when they called me to tell me she had a spot. And I was like, uh, she's like five. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, you not, did you not? And I had the money. I was like to pay for like a spot in somebody's home. But like, if you need subsidization or other services, that doesn't fly. Um, yes. Interesting. It is, it is a crisis. 
And I cannot believe it is the number one intervention that gets women back to work. Mm. So hello. <laughs> it's like anybody go. who's listening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to ask you, and I want to make sure we get a little bit of time on this, about the global picture, about how the t- pandemic is hitting. I know for me personally, I find listening and watching the news very challenging. So I tend to read like Canadian headlines, uh, sometimes watch the PM and stuff like that. But the global story, I don't hear a lot about like how it's really impacting even the, the, the rates of infection, um, how inoculations are going to work. So can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic is impacting um, women and children globally? Yeah, I mean, I'll give the, the, maybe the three top headlines because we could talk, um, (laughs) we could talk about this at length. I think um, where you have weaker infrastructure uh, before the pandemic, you have less ability to deal with the pandemic. And that's just true. Where you don't have water, I mean, a, a huge global study was done called What Women Want. Such mm. a great title. Uh, yeah. What Women Want. So our pod- podcast, which is called Women Don't Do That. Exactly. No. I like what it. Want. No, it was, it was so good. So this is this massive global study on what women want in their healthcare. The Number one and number two, water in their healthcare facilities in their homes. Mm. Number two, dignified care. Someone who, who listens to me. Right? So... Yeah. Most Canadians can associate with number two. Some Canadians can associate and understand number one. But th- this is what the world, what, we're not asking for like the best technology and obstetric care and these things. We're asking for water. Yeah. We are asking. So in a pandemic where you don't have those things, you need innovation to even wash your hands. I mean, the, yeah. the impacts are devastating. So where you had poor infrastructure, you have poor, um, you have kind of more dramatic, exponentially more dramatic uh, impacts from COVID. People were sitting on the line in 25 weeks of the pandemic, the first 25 weeks, we lost 25 years of global uh, progress, pulling people out of poverty and living in a more equal world. Mm-hmm. 25 weeks to reverse 25 years. Oh my gosh. So I think when people are thinking about, you know, the challenges and everyone has to exist within their own challenge space. So I'm not, this is not a, a judgmental, this is not eat your food because children are starving in Africa. This is not that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is about looking around and recognizing that the challenges we're facing here, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're saying by September, we'll, anyone who wants a vaccine will be vaccinated. That is likely before the first, or it'll be in the very initial stages of the first jobs going into the arms of people in other countries, simply because they were born somewhere else. There's no reason for it. There will be enough vaccines. There will be the global will to vaccinate. Uh, but, or there hopefully will be the global will to vaccinate. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're driving for that, but there simply won't be uh, the resources mobilized to get us there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's hard to look globally because you're being impacted here. I agree with limit your news, limit, you know, think about your community because we've got to not get stuck in the overwhelm. I agree with all that stuff. Constantly but crying. Literally, <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally the neighbor's house is on fire and there's a wind blowing our direction. Right. So if your neighbor's house is on fire and the kids are inside, are you really going to focus on doing the dishes? No, you're going to go save those kids because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that fire has the potential to start your house on fire. So it's also the smart thing to do, right? Right. And this is, this is the situation globally is that all around us, the fires are burning the right thing to do is to be global citizens and show up and support other human beings because they're human. Right. Absolutely. That's the right and the moral thing to do. The second thing is if we don't vaccinate the world quickly, effectively and efficiently, those variants are going to grow and Canada will not be able to stop this pandemic from being a 10 year journey instead of a one year journey. Right. So what, what would you say to people uh, listening, if and if you don't have bandwidth for those listeners that I'm, I'm seeing this, uh, do not feel bad. But for those that yeah. do feel like they have bandwidth, they care about this, they want to do something, be actionable. What what could they do? Call your MP. Mm-hmm. Tell them that Canada needs to show up globally and that that matters to you. Uh, that's and and you can say those words. Canada needs to. You don't have to have an idea about exactly what that looks like. You don't have to have a policy briefer, although I'm happy to provide it to you. Um, <laughs> just call your MP and say something. 
for those who have the resources and not everyone does, we've got over 100 members who are doing amazing work around the world, life-saving work. I'd encourage you to donate some time or some, some financial resources. Um, and then, you know, take 1% of your time, 1% of your bandwidth. It doesn't have to be 10, doesn't have to be 100. And look at a global story, you know, and just, you can find them. Uh, there's great news sites. BBC is great. CBC yeah. has some good global stories. Just pick a country, pick one country in the world that you're going to like, you know, make yeah. your algorithm follow. Yeah. Right. Just yeah. to hear it because these stories have the potential to transform us and they can be your guide. Mm, I love that. Those are, those are great examples. We'll make sure to put um, Ken Watch's information in the show notes too. So if people want to find out more about them or who, check out our work with. Yeah, check out their website. <laughs> that's okay. I'll say it for you. That's why there's two of us. Um, I want to get into the closing questions, but before we do that, you are a young executive. You're a woman. I can definitely relate to that experience. What are some of, like, to give people advice who are younger executives or want to be, what are some of the barriers you faced because of that scenario, and how have you overcome them? Yeah, I mean, this could be a whole separate hour. Um, <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the barriers are much like, uh, much like many women face, uh, credibility, audibility, uh, Rebecca Solnit uh, has this amazing book, she talks about credibility, um, audibility, and visibility, I think, and so it's to be seen, heard, and listened to as if you're telling the truth and have mm. something to say, um, and I think all of those, I now kind of walk into meetings and I'm like, will I be heard? for what I'm actually saying, will someone take my idea and repeat it and then everyone will give credit to them because they're male and more powerful. All these things, right? And then to have what I say, I see the way women write compared to the way men write when I'm you know, receiving information. It's like a million sources uh, from these female researchers because they've got to prove that they're actually, what they're actually saying is true. I'm all for sourcing, but at the same time, where's your voice in that? Like, it's all mm -hmm. these things, right? And I've personally faced them at different moments and different times. Um, and I think the best way to overcome it is with humility and commitment to yourself, but also commitment to how the, the hardest thing for me is when I walk back into my team and my team says, and this happens often, you know, you did a really great job at breaking through in that meeting. Yeah. And I'm like, that's wonderful. That, I, that my team sees that, but those are all equal partners and there's one partnership. We're funding this whole thing. Why do I have to break through? Like this is right. literally my project, yes. right? Why do I have to break through as a voice? And it kind of, it breaks my heart a little bit, right? That we have to do so much thinking as an all, all female team, so much work to just get through the noise and show up as just ourselves, our smart selves that have the most brilliant team on the planet. Um, yeah. Yeah. So my piece of advice is think about it. Think about it every time you walk out of a meeting. What were the dynamics that were at play? Mm -hmm. Spend a, a minute, spend two minutes, talk to a friend, remain humble. There's lots we can still do to improve ourselves and right. got to maintain that humility. Um, but listen, listen to your instinct. If you think what was going on there was a little bit of patriarchy, yeah, then call it out. Call it, even if you just say it to yourself, man, that was patriarchy. That was like, I just got mansplained, yeah. right? Say it on that to yourself and then maybe, you know, you have a bit more courage the next time to call it out in the actual meeting. Yeah, you know, those are interesting things to think about for sure. I remember like early in my career, a lot of men and even women leaders tended to look a certain way. And I had a young VP and she had this long, beautiful hair and, and she would wear it curled. And I was like, wow, like you can be a VP and have hair like that. Like it seems so basic, but like even just being like, okay, like I don't have to have gray hair and have short hair or be this or be this. And, uh, that was, it really stuck with me. It still does that. Um, that you can be a leader and, and look that way. And something else I've noticed for myself, I think, and I've heard other people say this too, is like being prepared or trying to be confident in that, you know, you know, your stuff when you start speaking. So even though you might look young, um, when people hear you speak, they know that you're a voice of authority. And, and I, I have found that that has served me well, even though I look young, I'm only 4'10" and I look young, and I am young. And so all of those things make it really challenging for me 
but I think, you know, knowing, knowing your stuff and, and being able to uh, disseminate it in confidence has really helped me. Although it's kind of annoying, like you said, Julia, you end up having to be more prepared than other people, but <laughs> it is what it is. If you watch great, great leaders, like I work with tons of great male leaders, the confidence to say, I don't know. Right. Huh, interesting. I don't know, actually. Let's think about that. Like, how many times have you heard that in a meeting when you're like, that's completely appropriate? Yeah. What he doesn't know. Let's think about that. And yeah. so showing up and saying those kinds of things too is like, yes, be prepared, be humble, be all those things. That's a good point. But be okay, right? With not, you don't have yeah, to. Yeah, I, I would never fake something for sure. Like if I don't yeah. know, I would say I don't know. And I think that is it's really important. Yeah, it yeah. is a privilege. And also so important, right? So much, so many of us would benefit from that kind of leadership. I want to ask you um, the set of questions that we like to ask at the end, but is there anything we've missed or, or anything you want to add before we jump into them? I don't think so. I mean, I was probably uh, supposed to talk a lot more about, about Ken Watch and the amazing work that my team is doing. So please do check out uh, our website and our, really our website is there to be a platform for our members, which is where we want you to get to. Um, but there's a lot of good. Canada is, is doing a lot of good in the world. Canadians are doing a lot of good and they need your support, right? They need for the people not in the, in the thick of it, they need to know that Canadians are proud of what's, what's going on and, and are proud it, of it. It is so important because, you know, somebody, myself, who, who's worked in industrial development, you can say as much as you want that you want the government to do X or whatever and know it's the right thing to do. But unless Canadians make it clear that that's also what they want, uh, they don't see it as a priority. And so, yeah, I think what you said about going and speaking to your members of parliament, checking out your website, these are some of the things that people can, can do to, to learn more and take action. So what is the best rule you ever broke? Best rule that I ever broke is that just because you planned it doesn't mean you have to do it. So I was a week away from a beautifully planned wedding and I called it off. And, you know, there's a lot of momentum that goes into planning a wedding, yes. a lot of things, but it's a, it's a good one. Just because you planned it doesn't mean you have to do it. That is so important. That's incredibly difficult to do, but I guarantee you there's so many people that have questioned it and, and done it anyways. And so maybe you'll give some power to somebody else who's, who's wondering about something. <laughs> what is the most valuable habit that was hardest to create? Well, I've been like busting through habits uh, in the last uh, last couple of years. I've been really on this, like how habits are formed and how we break them. Yeah. So one that I gave up was I, I went alcohol free um, mm -hmm. in the pandemic. And that was like a pretty, it required a lot of change of habits. I was, I loved my evening red wine, right. um, a glass for sure. Most, most nights. Uh, so that was a hard habit to break. Um, and then my, the habit that I've been working on this year is go to the forest every day. Mm. So I'd added a little bit onto my run. I see the trees. It's in the city. It's not, you know, but go to the forest and be quiet. Oh, that's great. I love that. There was something you said that at the beginning there that I was thinking alcohol. about. Yeah, the alcohol. I, so I have chronic migraines and um, just for, and some other health, issues but like I don't drink I don't smoke and some of these things I'm not allowed to do right um I don't even drink coffee I'm not allowed to drink coffee and like I still have these health problems and sometimes I'm like I'm so mad like I'm I'm not doing any of these things <laughs> these things are still happening to me but I'm working through it it's okay can you name another woman that inspires you I I work with 22 um 22 women on an all-female team, and I, I couldn't pick one of them, but I know that I show up every day inspired, and Amazing. every day, like, just this, we have a really big age range of people, and I, I just spend so much time with, like, goosebumps uh, when people are talking, when I'm, oh, when I love I'm it. them, so. It's My great to, to feel encouraged every day. I know some of them, so I understand <laughs> where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, okay. Can you tell us about a book that makes you wiser? Yes. Yeah, so many, so many books come to mind. Um, so many books come to mind. I think that the one that I, I would love everyone to read because it made me a lot smarter about my body is called, um, 
In the Flow by Elisa Vitti. Have you heard Elisa Vitti? No. So she's, she's like uncovering what it means to be a woman and have hormones. And the fact that uh, zero research is done on women of reproductive ages for any sort of medical trials or anything like that, because yeah. we're too messy. It's too messy. And, <laughs> and how much hormones are, you know, how much they play into our lives, just like for men, they play into their lives dramatically. Men have just as many hormones, but how we know exactly because the whole world is built around a male hormonal cycle and we don't build ourselves around a female hormonal cycle. So that book really gave me permission to rest. It gave me permission to recognize what I'm hearing in my body. And it gave me permission to be like, yeah, I've got hormones. You've got hormones too. That has nothing to do with this interaction that we're having. <laughs> what has to do with this interaction that we're having is who I am and what I'm, how I'm showing up. So is this weird kind of, it's more about hormones than I thought. And at the same time, um, I'm not controlled by my hormones. I just need to see, see and recognize them. Cause I, growing up, got told often, you know, we all got dismissed as just being PMSing and, and these things. And this book, I think really attempts to inform you of what's going on while not doing that while not saying that you're you're less of a person because of the hormones i'm gonna have to read that (laughs) definitely be on my list well thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom and advice with us it's uh be i know will be really beneficial to the listeners thank you super fun and please uh find me ask me questions i'd love to ask you questions too so let's yeah we'll, we'll we'll make sure to put your social media in Uh, the show notes so if people want to find you they can thank you amazing thank you for listening to women don't do that i hope you feel inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode stay connected on twitter and instagram at women don't do that i would love to have you join the conversation so make sure you join our next instagram live Find all our podcast and blog content at womendontdothat.com. Join me next time.